My name's Austin. I'm on staff here at Mercy House. And uh, if you've been here, you've been in the re- preaching rotation a few times, so you'll have seen me up here before, but I'm glad to be with you this morning. And so we're jumping back into Paul's second letter to Timothy. So if you were, the last couple weeks, we were on a little hiatus for spring break, and now we're back into Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So you can pull out your Bibles and follow along with me. We'll be starting there. Now, uh, in case you don't remember all the details of the last few sermons, uh, in chapter 2, we talked about uh, false teaching, and we talked about... Um, cutting straight or rightly dividing the word of truth as being the the solution to false teaching. Uh, Then after that, Tommy talked about how we can be a vessel of honor in God's house. So if you're in God's house, how you can be cleaned up to be a vessel for God's use, for him to use for his glory and for the church. So that was what we talked about in chapter two. And now here in chapter three, we have Paul again returning to this theme of false teachers. So so here we are, beginning of chapter three. And I think this whole section here, as we had read this morning, is really setting up a big contrast. So you see that in verse 10, it says, you, however, right, so he's talking to Timothy, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching. So he's setting up a big contrast between what we're going to see in the first part, verses 1 through 9, and what we're going to see in the second part. So I'm going to focus on the first half, I'll leave the second half for for Billy next week, Uh, but we're going to focus in on uh, the false teaching here at the beginning. Apparently I get all the false teaching passages, so... It's not, it's not my favorite, it just, just happens, works out that way. Uh, but false teaching was clearly a significant problem for the early church in general, uh, and specifically for the church at Ephesus. So Paul actually warns the, the elders of the Ephesian church in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So he's saying these, these people are going to come, they're going to be like wolves, they're going to come in and they're going to cause destruction in the flock, right, which is the, the sheep, the church. Um, and they're going to come from your own selves, right? These are not outside forces. These are people within the church who are causing uh, this destruction and causing people to be led astray. And we saw the last time in chapter 2, Paul compares this to like gangrene, right? This horrible disease that destroys from, from the inside out. Okay, so this is where we're looking at going into the beginning of chapter 3. And Paul says to Timothy, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And these are like violent or turbulent times that he's warning him about. Now, first question here is when is Paul talking about? Is he, is he, so you may have heard this before in the context of like an a end times thing. Like, oh, when the end times come, we're going to see all these things happening. When the New Testament authors, generally when they use the term the last days, they're actually referring to, to their own time. So they understood that, that Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, was a fulfillment of everything they'd been waiting for and was going to usher in the, the last days. So them living between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and Christ's second return, those are the last days, which means that we're, we're still in the last days, right? This is still our time too, but this isn't some distant future reality that Timothy, in thousands of years, it's like, Timothy, right now, like you should be expecting this to be happening. He's warning him about a current thing that's going on, uh, about these, these seasons that he's going to experience. Now, why will these times be so difficult? Well, he says, for 
these people, for people will be like this. Okay, so the reason times are going to be bad is because of people. I think we can generally recognize that best times in life, worst times in life, usually have to do with people, right? Other people. <laughs> so he gives a list of these people and talks about the kind of people they're going to be. So I want to, I want to briefly go through this list. There, there are 19 categories here, so I'm going to do this very briefly. But I think we'll see that these are not totally unique to the first century. We might be able to recognize... Uh, some of these things here. So the first one, uh, he says, for people will be lovers of self. And this is a term that, it could just mean generic, like, love yourself kind of thing, but generally it's used in terms of narcissism. This is a, a, an inordinate self-love. Um, maybe you're familiar with the, I don't know, I, I was given this acronym as a kid, the joy, Jesus, others, you. If you sort of order your life that way, you'll, you'll have joy. Well, this is people reversing the whole thing, right? Like, you, you first, then others, then God, right? It's this inordinate self-love. Then we have lovers of money. And if you were here last week with us, uh, Pastor Greg, First Baptist, talked about love of money and how this is something that consumes our society and our culture. It's hard to imagine a society more obsessed or driven by wealth. Um, and not that wealth is in and of itself is so bad, but that it's the question of how do we acquire our wealth? What role does it play in our life? What do we do with it? Right? How does it drive us and, and shape us? Uh, and Paul actually warns Timothy about this in 1 Timothy, in chapter 6. He says, Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he's saying, yeah, love of money, it, it affects everything else in your life, right? It starts to, to take over all aspects of your life. Uh, number three, boastful. Uh, this it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, there are all sorts of ways that we, we boast about our accomplishments, our achievements, or your GPA, or the kind of car you drive, or the house you own, or all these social status things. Your, my child is an honor roll student bumper sticker. Right? There are all kinds of ways we boast about uh, the, the, our accomplishments in life. Uh, proud. Again, this is just a, should be straightforward. Think about pride. It's not that hard to imagine uh, ourselves or others being proud. Um, Five is abusive. This is the word for blaspheme or blasphemy. So this is like slanderous speech against God or other people. Right? So ta talking offensively or, or derogatively or, or hurtfully about, uh, towards God or, or towards other people. Uh, disobedient to parents. I think here we start to see the relational effects of the first section. Right? So we have these what seem like kind of more personal things, right? like what you love, and whether you're, you're proud or not, these seem like kind of personal things. But now we see that these people are also disobedient to parents. So this isn't just a, a private thing. This, this has effects now in the relationships that these people have. And I think this is not a hard one for us to, to understand. Uh, our whole country is founded on revolution, <laughs> right? Like anti-authoritarianism is built into who we are as a people uh, here in America. And so... We can understand this, this uh, anti-disrespect uh, for authority, right, this is coming out here, that disobedient to parents. And I think this fits really well, actually, with the next, the next couple. So the next one is ungrateful, and this is the word akeristos. So a is in not, keristos, meaning like grace, thanksgiving, gratefulness, right? So people, some people use the term Eucharist for, for communion, right? It means thanksgiving. So this is people who are not grateful. And we can think of keristos as like, 
the basic disposition of all creatures to their creator in light of their existence being totally dependent on God. So it's, it's as creatures, all creatures in existence, from, from rocks to humans to galaxies, right? Their, their relationship to God is one of kerastos because our whole existence is totally dependent on God. So these are people who in their, their pride and their arrogance and their self-love are not recognizing this relationship, this dependency, this with gratefulness. Uh, unholy, this is a word for impious or irreverent. So it's a lack of reverence for God. And this really is associated with this lack of gratitude. So Philo of Alexandria, who's a, a first century Jewish philosopher, he gives us this definition or this description. He says, every impious man, and this is the word anasios here, um, so not nasios, uh, every impious man supposes that what he thinks and understands is owing to the bounty of his intellect, that what he sees is the gift of his eyes, what he hears of his ears, what he smells of his nostrils, and so that each of his outward senses bestows on him those perspectives which are in accordance with them. Again, he supposes it is the organs of the voice which endow him with the capacity of speaking, that there is actually no such thing as a god at all, or at, that all events that he is, at all events that he is not the primary cause of things. So this is just general disposition that I'm self-sufficient, I don't need help from anybody, I certainly don't need help from God. Does this sound familiar to <laughs> the idea of being a, you know, the self-made man, the, the individual, autonomous individual? Uh, number nine is heartless. So this is astorgos, which means not love, not loving without love, just bereft of natural affection. So this self-love is resulting in not loving others. Ten, unappeasable. This one just means no treaty. Just completely unwilling to reconcile, right? Just hard-hearted. I'm not willing to uh, ask for forgiveness. I'm not willing to receive forgiveness. I'm not going to go there. I don't, I'm not willing to reconcile. Uh, Slanderous. This is actually the word diabolical. So the word Paul uses to talk about the devil and his lies, his accusations, right? These these people are are diabolical. Uh, Without self-control, lacking in self-discipline and restraint. Again, this shouldn't be hard for us to imagine in a society that we, we thrive on not having limitations put on us, right? Don't, don't tell me what I can and can't do. That's so built into who, to who we are. And we see this is one of the results here of this lacking of self-control. Uh, brutal, this is not tame, fierce, savage. Uh, number 14, not loving the good. So these are people who are, now they're talking about like the common good, the general well-being of humanity. These people don't care about what happens to everyone else. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care what happens, what's good for everybody, as long as it benefits me. 15, treacherous. This is the word used in Luke of Judas as a betrayer. He's treacherous. He doesn't, he betrays those around him. 16, reckless. This is just sort of speaking without thinking, you know, and I don't know about you, my parents all the time were like, do you ever think before you speak? Have you ever got that? (laughs) But this sort of just speaking without thinking, you know, we, we talk about verbal diarrhea, right? This just talking and talking. Uh, 17, swollen with conceit, puffed up with knowledge. Um, this is not, again, hard for us to think about. We live in an information age, right? That's how we talk about our current context. This is the age of information. Um, and, but Paul tells in the Corinthians, he says, knowledge puffs up, but it's love that builds up, right? So, so just because we have lots of knowledge does not mean it's going to solve our problems, the knowledge is not necessarily the answer. In fact, it results in this self-righteousness and conceit, which for those of us in, 
the academic world, I don't think it's hard for us to, to understand that as a constant temptation um, that we deal with. Lover, number 18 is lovers of pleasure rather than God. And I think this is really our, our bookend here with number one. So lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than God. And we see Paul kind of bookending these things with the, the kinds of things that these people love or don't love. And finally, they have a form of godliness but are denying its power. So why does Paul give us this big grab bag of attributes and characteristics? Uh, what are some things we can, we can learn from this? First, I think that false teaching is to be expected. Right? He's, he's warning Timothy, this is going to happen. It might not happen all the time. There are going to be times, there are going to be seasons, but this is going to happen. So we need to look out for it. Um, and so Kevin DeYoung, uh, who's a pastor, Gospel Coalition guy, he has some helpful ways of thinking about this. He says, a false teacher or wolf is someone who snatches up sheep, draws disciples away from the gospel, opposes the truth, and leads people to make a shipwreck of the faith and embrace ungodliness. And he gives a few points here about wolves. He says, wolves, for one, they don't always know that they're wolves. So sometimes people are just genuinely misled. And he talks about, Paul kind of mentions this down in, uh, in verse 13. He says, they're going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, right? Like they themselves are deceived. And they might be totally genuine and sincere, but, the, but they're leading people away from the faith. So people don't always know that they're doing this. But he says, and wolves can quote the Bible. Now, if you've ever engaged with, with various Christian cults, sometimes they know the Bible really, really well. Sometimes they know the Bible better than I do. <laughs> right? They'll be able to quote passages and scriptures, and well, this verse says this, and, and they'll know their Bible really well. But what you tend to see, and, and he says this number three, he says wolves tend to be imbalanced. So they'll tend to know the Bible really well about specific things, and they'll take those specific things and make them the dominant thing. So right, they might say something like, well, God is a God of love, so God would never do that. Right? And they take sort of one truth that we get from Scripture and, and sort of play it over the whole thing and ignore the rest of Scripture. So there's, there's a tendency to be imbalanced, right? to, to favor some things instead of what people call the, the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture. Uh, wolves prefer ambiguity to precision. Right? They, it won't let you quite be nailed down on, on what they think. Um, <clears throat> but then he says wolves come in different shapes and sizes. So I think we see this in, in different ways, right? So people who are, who are false teachers, who are wolves, who are leading the church astray, it could be very libertarian, right? It could be kind of free sexual ethics. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, so do whatever makes you feel good, right? It could be sort of that end of the spectrum. But it could also be the other end of the spectrum. It could be very legalistic, right? It could be, you know, you can't drink these things or say these things or, or you have to read this version of the Bible or all sorts of things that aren't actually in Scripture, uh, but, but are applied as ways of, of control and power and are sort of added to Scripture. And this is what, when Paul talks about the circumcision party, right? They're coming in and saying, you have to also follow these laws. And he's like, no, that's, that's not it, right? He's condemning them as being false teachers. So some, some things to think about when we think about wolves here. But I think we're looking at the, this long list of attributes. We see some common themes. We see pride. We see selfishness. We see a disregard for authority. But the most common issue, and I see we see those, with those bookends, is love. And so I would say false teaching stems from a disordered love. Uh, and this is the way that actually Aquinas interprets this passage. That He says, Paul's giving us the, the root of their iniquity, lovers of self, 
And then it's diverse species. So all the ways that loving self, look all the ways that lo that looks like in someone's life. That's how we should read the rest of the passage, he says. All those other descriptions are just a description of what love of self ultimately looks like. Um, and I think this helps us understand something about sin. And this is the way that Augustine talks about sin and how we should understand what sin is. So sin is not just some things that we do, bad things we do sometimes, or good things that we don't do that we fail to do. Right? It's not that like, God has this law and you broke a couple of those laws. Right? That's, that's not the, the full understanding of sin. And so when we think about uh, the, the depths of the sin problem, it's not that we just sometimes do bad things, but it's that our actual our loves and our desires, the things that are most deeply uh, true about us and that drive us and motivate us, are misdirected at something other than God. <clears throat> so our, our loves and affections and desires are disordered. Um, so when we think about original sin, it's not just that, oh, sometimes people do bad things. It's that the very core of our being is oriented towards something other than the one true God. And we think about this when we see the greatest commandment, where Jesus says that it's, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he gives us this to sum up the whole law. Right? He's saying all of, all of God's laws kind of come down, can be sort of, in a sense, boiled down to these two things. Why? Because if your loves are rightly ordered so that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to do all the rest of the things. You won't be able to help but love your neighbor. You won't be able to help but live a holy life. You won't be able to help but live charitably and kindly and graciously and patiently and all the fruit of the Spirit that we see. That, that will be the natural result of being a, a lover of God. But the problem is that we're not, by nature, lovers of God. We're lovers of self. And so our whole orientation is thrown off, and we are, it's distorted. Um, and so those other fruit then become a symbol of the things that we love. They start to show us what it is that we love. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But continuing with the passage here in verse 6, uh, he says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So I think we see, do see here, though, that what Paul's concerned about is not just some bad theology, right? This is not just some people don't have their beliefs all correctly sorted out or something like that. This is something much more sinister, right? These are people who are, who are going and taking advantage of those, uh, taking advantage of people. So what is he talking about with these, these, these weak women? Um, I think we need to understand the context of the first century, right? That, that most women in this context were fairly young, so they were very young when they got married. They didn't usually have formal education. They haven't uh, had that much experience outside of the home, right? So there's a certain ignorance and innocence going on here. And these men are coming in and taking advantage of these women. So Paul's not, he's not calling out the women, right? Like it's not their fault in the sense that they're being deceived like this. The men, the men here that he's describing, they're, they're the problems, the ones who are taking advantage of these women. But we need to understand the context that these women are in. And the, the thing that jumped to my mind is like the, the TV trope and all the old, it's like in Hallmark movie kind of things of the, the snake oil salesman, you know, comes around peddling this, this false thing that's going to fix all your problems. And, and usually it's like they're going house to house and, you know, the husband's at work and the wife's at home and they're like, oh, if you just buy this thing, everything will be great. All right, and they're coming in and, and taking advantage of these women who they're not educated. They don't, they don't know any better. They don't know that what's going on here. 
So this is not a, a condemnation on the women. He's, Paul is really calling out these, these false teachers. Uh, he says that they're always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. Now, what he means by knowledge of truth here is like a, a, the saving knowledge of the gospel. So Paul uses this, this kind of phrase elsewhere in this context. And so they're, they're learning, right? They have lots and lots of knowledge, and it's, it's puffing them up and making them swollen with conceit. But they're never coming to accept the place where they understand the gospel, which is a submission to the authority and kingship of Christ, right? It's a very different kind of knowledge, right? The knowledge of of the truth of the gospel. It's not just, oh, I have more information in my head. It's I'm submitting my whole life to this this reality, right? This person who is the truth, the life, and the way. And then he compares them to Janus and Jambres, who are these two figures, and it's, it's kind of a, an interesting thing that Paul includes this here, because what he's referencing is Exodus chapter 7, uh, and he's talking about the opposition of these magicians to Pharaoh. So uh, I have this here. He says, chapter 7, uh, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When uh, Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now, if you notice, there's no mention of these, these two men here. <laughs> Janus and Jamboree. So where do they, where do they come from? Um, well, they had sort of sprouted up in Jewish folklore. And actually, for quite early on, there's stuff from the, the 9th century even, BCE, where uh, there, people are talking about these two legendary figures. So they become famous as these two sort of renowned magicians. And so it was believed that they were two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court at the time who were opposing Moses and Aaron. Uh, and they actually are so popular, they actually get included in the, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament in this passage, uh, which is kind of a loose paraphrase anyway. Um, but in, in the Targum, these two characters show up in this passage. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to see that the way Paul's drawing on what's become really popular folklore. Uh, actually, in the first century, there's an apocrypha of Janus and Jambres. That's how, how famous these legendary figures are. So he, he sort of uses this, this popular folk imagery that, that Timothy would be familiar with and talks about them opposing Moses, right? They're opposing the truth. And he's saying, this is, this is what this is like, right? So he's sort of harking on these, these Old Testament battles between Moses and Pharaoh, between God and God's people, and, and Pharaoh who sort of hardened his heart and who's really representing the, the enslavement of God's people. And he's comparing it to these two things, right? So this is a, a huge... Uh, contrast he's setting up. But then he says, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So, yes, they can make these snakes, and it seems really powerful, and they can perform these miracles, but Aaron's staff eats up all of their staffs, right? His snake eats up all their snakes. Like, they don't, they don't prevail, right? They're, ultimately, they're shown that they're false, that they're, they're gods that they're calling on, their magic that they're using is nothing compared to the one true God. And I think the way we see this playing out in this context is that false teaching always produces bad fruit. 
right? We look both, go back to that list of, of attributes, right? That these people are lovers of selves, and it comes out in all the ways that they live and behave. So we start thinking about false teaching. It's not just having wrong beliefs or wrong ideas or something like that, but there are also these deep ethical and moral failings that are going on. And we see this in, in Jesus' description in both Matthew and Luke. So in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Similarly, in Luke 6, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you see Jesus drawing out this relationship, right? That the, those who, who really love God you're going to see it in the way that they live, right? All, all the other ways that, that they interact with other people, the things that they say, the things they do, the fruit is going to be obvious. Um, but those who don't, right? Those who, who are lovers of self, it's going to be obvious too. And so even though you get this sense in which these are, these are wolves in sheep's clothing, Paul says that they, they have the appearance uh, in, in uh, verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So at, at first blush, they're going to look like good religious people. They're going to look like good Christian people. And they're going to be these, these wolves in sheep's clothing. But it's also not this kind of witch hunt suspicion thing, like, oh, who's secretly a wolf? Like, he's like, you're going to know. It's going to ultimately be obvious, because their fruit is going to show you who they really are. It's going to show you what they really love most. So there is this concern that you should be on the lookout for these, these wolves in sheep clothing, these false teachers, but at the same time, it, he says it's, it's going to be fairly obvious in the end, right? You might be confused at first, and there will be some people who will be deceived and confused at first, but it will be clear to you, Timothy, who these people really are, because it'll eventually become obvious what they love the most. And so like I said, this fruit becomes <clears throat> the the evidence of, of what's really going on inside. And <clears throat> we see this, I talked about that relationship between loving God and loving your neighbor. A lot of times the New Testament authors, they just, they leave off the first part and they just talk about loving your neighbor. Because for them, the only way you can actually love your neighbor is if you love God. Like that's how intertwined those things are. But the only way you can really be a, a lover of others is if you already are a lover of God. Because those who love themselves first don't love others. And uh, John says, in 1 John chapter 4, he, he puts it very explicitly. He says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him, whoever loves God must love his brother also, or as well. So these things are, are completely intertwined, right? That if you, you will know false teachers by their fruit. It will be obvious by the way that they live the rest of their lives, the way that they, they love other people, the way that they serve, the way that they live humbly, it will show you what they love the most. <clears throat> and whether they are lovers of selves or lovers of God. 
But finally, uh, false teaching is overcome by the power of the gospel. So I'm going to give us a little hint into the second part of this chapter, which we read. I'm going to leave most of it for Billy. I don't want to uh, take, uh, steal some of his thunder. But Paul, uh, like you said, he talks about always learning and never coming to knowledge of the truth. But this is the, the solution to this, is this knowledge of the truth. Um, and so he tells him, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So he's talking about this whole gospel that he has passed on to Timothy, this good news that, that God has become incarnate, that he walked and lived among us, that he took on our sufferings and our sin on the cross. He experienced this condemnation of, of sin, that he has died and risen again and ascended to be reigning king over heaven. This is a, this gospel message. And Paul has passed on that message, but also passed on his whole way of life to Timothy. And so we have this, again, he's saying that they, these men, they have the appearance of godliness, but they don't have the power, this, this uh, dunamis, the power. But Paul tells Timothy, uh, back in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, right? That if you believe the gospel, you submit your life to the kingship of Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of power, which means it's going to transform your life. Similarly, in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if our problem is ultimately this one of our loves being disordered, right? That, that we are lovers of self and not lovers of God, then the solution can't just be moralistic teaching, Right? It can't just be, well, try harder to, to be a good person and follow God's law or do the right things. But it has to be something much deeper. See, only God can transform our hearts in that way. Only he can transform the, the deep desires and affections of our heart to be oriented towards him and not towards lesser things, especially our, ourselves. And so we need the gospel to do that. We need both the gospel that's passed down, uh, that, Tim, that Paul has passed down to Timothy, this, this message of truth, but also, the, the, he's saying, my conduct, the way that I live my life, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my suffering. He's saying, I've shown you what it looks like to be someone who loves God. You can see the fruit in my life, the way that I've suffered for the gospel, the way that I've humbly served in your midst, the way that I've loved the people around me. You can see that I, I love God that my life has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And so he's setting up this, this juxtaposition, this contrast to say, this, this is how you know what, what it really looks like to be a lover of God. And that should make it really obvious what it looks like when people don't. It should show you what that, that fruit looks like by contrast. So false teaching is overcome by the power of the gospel. That we need the gospel to transform our lives so we can be lovers of God and not just lovers of self. It's why we come back to this table every single week. Every week we come to the table and are reminded of the power of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to walk, God came to walk among us to give his life for us. That his body 
was broken. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And somebody took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come back to this table because it reminds us of this, this power that God has taken on all of our, our disordered loves. Because Jesus lived a life where he always was living fully with ordered loves, loving God first and foremost, so obe- obeying God in everything that he did, worshiping God in everything that he did. And that came out in every other way and we can see in his life, the way that he loved other people, the way that he spoke, everything about him was, was evidence that he was first and foremost a lover of God. And because he, he lived out that perfect life of loving God that we can never live, so that he can, when he goes to the cross and he takes on this, this condemnation of sin, right? And then he, he rises again. He can give us his righteousness so that we then can become lovers of God. But we can only do it by the power of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And so we, we need that reminder over and over again as we start, when we feel like we're failing to love God and we feel like we're going back to this default of loving ourselves. We need to be reminded that, that God is... He's already taken all of that. He took it onto himself. He's already, he's already punished the worst of sin and he's already forgiven everything that we have ever done or could do. And so we can come back and re- remember that we are forgiven in Christ and that he is the one who's going to transform our loves. No amount of effort on our part is gonna, is gonna solve that problem, but we come before God and we re- let him transform us in our lives. So I... I invite you to come to this table and be reminded of that truth and that power that you have in the gospel. And if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, then the way you're going to do this, we're going to form two lines here in the middle. You're going to come up, receive the bread, right, which is a reminder of the way that you received the grace, right? So it's not just the message, but it's also this, this conduct, this practice that you're reminded of the grace that you received freely, humbly, dependently on God. And you take the, the cup and, and go back around to your seat on the outside. And if you're here right now and you're, you're a Christian, or you're not a Christian, and I would encourage you right now just to remain in your seats and to spend this time to thinking and praying about what you've heard, looking at your life. It's like, am I, am I a lover of self? And how, how has that affected my relationships? How has it affected who I am and everything in my life? And am I, am I willing and ready to become a, a, a lover of God? so that I can be someone who actually loves others. So I invite you right now to, to think about that, if you're, if you're ready and willing to pray about that. Maybe this is the day where you receive the, the power of the gospel to transform your life. So I'm going to pray and invite our, our uh, communion servers up here. And at the same time, some of us will be in the back to pray with you. So if you need prayer for anything uh, or uh, I would love prayer. Come on back and pray with us. But let's begin.